Well, good morning, everyone. We send greetings to all of our Redemption Hill Church friends and family, and we are especially excited that this morning, um, many of us are gathered with others from the church body, and perhaps that's the first time some of you have, have gotten to see uh, some of your brothers and sisters from church. So uh, we have several who are here with us this morning. You don't see them on the camera. Um, but also want to say hello to those who are watching at Scott and Carolyn's house. Hello to all of you guys. Thank you uh, to the Huffmans for hosting. Uh, also, I know that there are some extras at uh, the Parkins and Millers, as well as at the home of Michael and Siler and Jacob and the Wilsons. Um, they have some friends gathered out there as well. So thank you to all of our hosts for your hospitality. And I trust that you all enjoyed being able to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, and we will uh, read our text for this morning's sermon, and we'll pray together before we jump into uh, the message for today. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, continuing our series through this epistle written by James, the brother of Jesus, to the believers who were scattered. Um, Maybe you feel like we are the scattered believers today, not able to meet together. Uh, James writes to... uh, those whom he had pastored previously who were part of the dispersion. They had been sent throughout the Roman Empire, scattered because of persecution, um, but still in need of shepherding, still in need of God's truth, in need of biblical uh, encouragement. And James offers that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in God's providence, this letter has been preserved for us today, and we aim to read it and believe what it says and apply it to our lives. So let's read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Father, as we read your word this morning, pray that you'd help us to understand how this applies to us today. I pray that you would correct our perspective. You'd help us to see the world as you see it. You'd give us humility and faith to receive and believe all that is revealed on this page of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would be at work in us to convict us of sin, of worldly desires and values. We pray that you would reorient us to see justice and righteousness the way that you do. And I pray that you would strengthen our faith to believe in the truths that this text portrays. We pray now for your help and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. We live in a world today that is full of injustice. Every day there are children who are trafficked for a price. Every day there are uh, dictators who, who thrive and who enrich themselves at the expense of their starving people. Every day there are abortion doctors who kill unborn babies for a cash price. Injustice and money, the the wrongful pursuit of money, often goes hand in hand. And it has been this way since man fell. 
But where is God in all of this? Does God see and does God care? The answer that this text gives is a thundering yes. He does see and he does care and he will act. In the face of human injustice, in the face of oppression, in the face of cruelty, we need a healthy view of God. We need the kind of big picture perspective that takes into account God's character and God's plan. While there is a lot more to dealing with the problem of evil in the world, the fact that perfect judgment is coming is an essential part of the equation. It is something that we must cling to, we must hold to. Often in our world, when we consider the injustice around us, the discussion typically focuses on what we can do and what we should do. And there is a right and appropriate place and time to have that conversation. But what's often missing from those conversations are the reality of what God can do and what God will do. And that's the perspective James gives us in this text. And his point is this, that the reality of judgment should cause fear and preserve hope. It should cause fear, godly fear, holy fear, but it should also preserve hope. It should encourage us as we consider what God is going to do. James has already made clear that as a pastor, he wants his people to endure. He wants them to persevere. We see this in chapter one, verses two through four, as James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need steadfastness. We need to be able to endure. James says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Perseverance, endurance is essential. And we need faith in what God is going to do in the future to strengthen us, to keep running the race without losing heart, without giving up. So I really believe that these strong words of condemnation in James chapter 5 actually serve, are intended to serve as a source of comfort to those who are afflicted, to encourage them to remain steadfast, even in the face of oppression. So I want to look this morning in this text at three reasons why this reality of judgment should both cause fear and preserve hope. Number one, in verses one through three, we find that judgment is inevitable for the unjust. Judgment is inevitable. It's verses one through three. In this message of judgment, James starts off with this abrupt phrase, come now. He says, come now, you rich. He used this language at the close of chapter four as well. And we noted then that this is very severe and direct and somewhat abrupt. But here he's not speaking or, or to brothers. He's not addressing brothers. He's speaking to specifically the rich. He says, come now, you rich. And he tells them of this impending doom that is coming upon them. Weep and howl, he says, for the miseries that are coming upon you. There's no conditional language here. There is no escape route. These are things that James says will happen. His point is that the wicked may think they can run on forever, and the righteous may wonder if God is ever going to act or if God will let them get away with it. But James asserts their time will come. 
Now, a key question we have to answer here is, who exactly is it that James is talking to? Who are these rich that he is addressing who are going to have these miseries coming upon them? Is James talking to believers or is he talking to unbelievers? Is he speaking about those who are inside the church or those who are outside the body of Christ? I'm convinced that the people James is talking about here are not Christians. They are not true believers, even if they may profess to be religious. Let me give several reasons why. First of all, James says these people are destined to experience miseries in verse 1. But we know that God's children are destined to enter the joy of the Lord, complete opposite destinies. Secondly, there's evidence against them here, if you look at verse 3, evidence that leads to condemnation. But Paul tells us in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Third, we see that there's going to be punishment for their guilt in verse 3. But we know that Jesus has already paid the debt for us. He has absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. There is no punishment coming on judgment day for those who have trusted in Christ. In addition, these people are destined, verse 5, for the day of slaughter. But we are destined for eternal life. Finally, these people are contrasted in verse 6 with the righteous kind of man, but in, or they're contrasted with the righteous man that they have killed, verse 6. But according to Scripture, those who believe in Christ are counted righteous. We are, are justified. We are clothed in his righteous robes. We are referred to as the saints, the holy ones. But these people are contrasted with the righteous kind of person in verse 6. So I'm convinced that those that James is writing about here are not believers. And furthermore, we need to point out that they are not being judged because they are rich. They're not being judged for being wealthy. Rather, they're going to be judged for how they acquired and how they used their wealth. It's very clear from this passage, these people are greedy and they have abused their power by profiting at the expense of the poor. And in doing so, they have given evidence by their works that they have no genuine faith. Their God is money and self. So that brings up another question. If that's true that James is writing to, to unbelievers who are outside the church, if that's who he's talking about, why would he include this little section in his letter that's intended to be sent to believing brothers scattered throughout the Roman Empire? Well, once again, I believe James is writing here to encourage those who have suffered at the hands of these kinds of people. This text has a lot in common with several portions in the Old Testament, especially if you read the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah has this list of these woes that he pronounces, these oracles of doom upon the enemies of God's people. There, Jeremiah pronounces woes on the Philistines, on the Moabites, on Egypt, on Ammon, and on Babylon. And these judgments that, that Jeremiah writes are mingled with God's word to his people, so I don't think that Jeremiah expected the Philistines to read his scroll. He expected the people of God to read the, the words of his prophecy. But they were to read these words about judgment on God's enemies in order, because these, these prophecies revealed God's righteousness, and it would have given hope to those who were being oppressed. The Israelites had suffered at the hands of these wicked nations. I think James similarly writes these words here in James chapter 5, not to those in the church, 
but for those in the church. And there's a difference. This passage would have not only encouraged those who suffered, but it also would have taught them. This serves to teach us today as well because this passage really exposes the futility of wealth. It exposes the absolute worthlessness of wealth when it comes to eternity. The best that wealth has to offer is only temporary. Verse 2, James says, Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. The stuff in this world that people live for, that people want so bad, it doesn't last forever. It just doesn't. It can't. We all know that. We know that you can't take it with you. And we know that everything eventually breaks down. It's interesting, if you know a little bit about gold and silver, you'll know that real gold cannot rust. That's part of what makes it so valuable in terms of the precious metal. And silver only can tarnish on the outside. And that's something you can polish up and repair. But James says here in verse 3 that their gold and silver have rusted straight through, corroded, just like cheap iron. What's his point here? It's not that James doesn't know about how rust works. He's, He's saying this to illustrate the fact that even what we see to be most permanent and most durable, the best that this world has to offer, even that cannot last. This is why Jesus urged his disciples not to live their lives for temporary riches. You all know the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can almost imagine that James is remembering this teaching of his half-brother Jesus about moths and rust and the damage and the corrosion that happens to things of this world. We know that it can't last. And if that's true, even of wealth that's acquired in the right way, that it can't last and that it eventually breaks down, how much more so for wealth that has been acquired by wicked means? Proverbs 21 verse 6 says, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Jesus says to the unbelieving rich in Luke chapter 6, 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. He says, what you've gotten now is all you're going to get. He says in verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It's empty. It's foolish. It's futile. The desire, the the idolatrous desire to acquire wealth is not just a waste, but for those who are about to face judgment, it is foolish to the extreme. James points this out in verse 3 by saying, You have laid up treasure, notice what he says, in the last days. Laid up treasure in the last days. Scripture refers to the time between Jesus' first and second coming, the time that we're in now, as being the last days. Scripture refers to this period of time as the last days because judgment is imminent. Christ will soon return. There's nothing else that still needs to happen before Jesus can come back. And what this means is that unjustly oppressing others 
to acquire wealth, making that kind of a compromise to get things that are only valuable in this time, that's just as dumb as a resident on the seacoast planting flowers in a garden while the hurricane clouds are building up on the skyline. That garden is going to get completely wrecked. It's a waste of time to try to, to cultivate, to store up these riches when it's the last days. Ezekiel warned of a day when God's wrath would break out and wealth would become absolutely useless. Ezekiel uh, chapter 7, verse 19 says, They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. When a person comes to face Christ on the day of judgment, wealth will become obsolete. There will be no value left in it anymore. It will be meaningless and worthless. What matters is that you are right with your maker. But these people have rejected God and his ways and preyed upon people made in the image of God in order to acquire wealth. And that's why verse 1 warns that judgment is coming for the rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You can board up your windows all you want, but the day of judgment is coming. And the reality of this judgment should cause fear in wicked hearts and should preserve hope for those who have been oppressed. Judgment is inevitable for the unjust. But secondly, judgment is also deserved by the unjust. That's something that James makes clear in verse 4. This judgment is deserved. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Their sin is exposed pretty clearly here. Um, There's four specific charges that are leveled against them, verses 4 through 6. First of all, these people are clearly selfish. Verse 3 shows that they have hoarded their wealth. And the fact that this is a sinful hoarding and not wise saving, which is commended in other places, it's made painfully clear. There's sort of a tragic irony in the fact that James prophesies the corrosion of of their riches will not only be evidence against them, but it will eat their flesh like fire. This is poetic justice to the extreme. These people have been selfish and and their sinful pursuit of wealth is going to turn around and land on their own heads. Not only are they selfish, they've been unjust. Verse four says they've kept back the wages from their employees um, by fraud, by fraud. They've not loved their neighbor and they have broken the law. They're guilty of being unjust. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 says, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. James says that's exactly what's happened with these people. They have kept back by fraud the wages that were due to their workers. They are, third, idolatrous. Verse 5 says they have engaged in sinful self-indulgence. Sinful self-indulgence. 
indulgence. These are the kind of people that Paul would have said of them, like he does in Philippians 3, their God is their belly. That's a vivid description of this kind of idolatry, this this desire for luxury and self-indulgence. And finally, these people are ruthless. In verse 6, it says that they have murdered the righteous person. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us that that's one of the things that is an abomination to God. Hands that shed innocent blood is an abomination to God. He hates that with a strong, holy, white-hot, righteous hatred. And these people are guilty of being selfish and unjust, idolatrous and ruthless. What this means is that the judgment that is going to fall on the last day, the judgment they are going to experience is not just a knee-jerk reaction. No, it will be a carefully measured dispensing of wrath that has been justly earned by the wicked deeds of these people. In this section, James really paints a courtroom scene for us in vivid colors. Verse 3 describes corrosion that serves as evidence for the trial. Verse 4 says the wages they withheld and the people they ripped off, they both cry out for justice. So you have witnesses. You have evidence on the table, an accuser at the bar, victims on the stand testifying to what has taken place. And the unavoidable verdict is that they are guilty. And therefore, the unavoidable consequence is that they will be punished. Every ounce of God's judgment is fully deserved by those upon whom it falls. And there is not one sin in the history of the universe that will go unpunished. Judgment, judgment. It's inevitable for the unjust and it is deserved by the unjust. Thirdly, judgment is also the response of a just God. The response of a just God. The one who sees all that happens, the one who hears these cries, the one who has the power and authority to render judgment is perfectly just. The image here of wages and pieces of money crying out to God that we see in verse four um, and the cries of the harvesters as well reaching his ears. It gives us a picture of a world that is meant to operate according to God's principles of righteousness and justice. And when the world doesn't work that way, God sees and God knows. This poetic description of wages themselves crying out to God, it reminds us of God's words to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel in Genesis 4. Do you remember that story? God comes to Cain in Genesis 4.10 and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, a liquid doesn't have a literal voice to cry out. What that's describing is the fact that God is highly aware of every act of injustice that takes place. He cannot ignore it. God sees when injustice is done. He hears the blood of Abel. He hears the wages that have been withheld from these laborers. He hears the cries of his martyred saints crying out, How long, O Lord? And the promise of all of this judgment reveals something more about God, that he is perfectly, powerfully, frighteningly just. What he hears and what he sees, he will respond to. This judgment is not just appearing out of thin air. What James is talking about happening here for the rich, this is not just karma. This is not just what goes around, comes around. This is judgment that is highly 
personal in nature, being intentionally poured out by God himself, the one who acts as the supreme and just judge. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. The testimony of Scripture is that God is perfectly just. Every embezzled dollar God sees. Every stolen minute on the time clock, God sees. Every underhanded sale pitch, God sees. Every absent father, every cruel husband, every unfaithful wife, God sees. Every abuse of a child's innocence, every abortion of an unborn baby, God sees. Every drug cartel operation, Every case of sex trafficking, every instance of racial discrimination, God sees. Every act of political corruption, God sees. Every false teacher infecting the church and deceiving the sheep, God sees. And he not only sees, he is coming. He is coming to reveal the fullness of his righteous wrath against all such Wickedness, And if this does not cause a holy mixture of fear and hope within you, then you don't really know who God is. And you aren't taking him seriously. Because this is the God revealed on the pages of Holy Scripture. The one who sees is, in fact, James says, the Lord of hosts. These cries have reached the ears, according to the end of verse, verse 4, reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. We often see injustice. We see it in person. We hear about it from our friends. We see it on the news. We read about it. But we're often hopelessly powerless to do anything about it. And that breaks our hearts. But God is not like us. And that's a very good thing. God is able. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This name is incredibly significant when you study scripture. This word hosts refers to armies. It's a fearsome title that points to God's power. And James is using it here, not just for style points. This is no small detail. James is saying, listen, the one who hears the cries of the oppressed, the one who sees every act of injustice is none other than the almighty God. If you've read your Bible, this title, Lord of Hosts, brings with it the echo of countless instances of God's power and God's judgment. This is the same Lord of Hosts who commanded the destruction of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's the same Lord of Hosts in whose name David stood before the giant Goliath, before he killed him and cut off his head. It's the same Lord of Hosts who killed Uzzah for touching the Ark of the Covenant. Psalm 24, 7 declares the Lord of hosts is the king of glory. Isaiah 1, 24 declares that the Lord of hosts is the mighty one of Israel. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. 
And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Isaiah chapter 6 records the cries of the angelic creatures who call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that's why Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among, amidst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This title is intended to arouse in us a holy fear. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And we could go on and on. <clears throat> But the rich people that James is talking about here have made clear by their pattern of life that they do not fear this God. They do not fear the Lord of hosts. In verse 5, they've lived their lives in sinful self-indulgence, <clears throat> feeding every appetite, pursuing every pleasure and comfort, not realizing that they are simply fattening their hearts, verse 5 says, for the day of slaughter. The day of slaughter. The Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, both refer to the coming judgment of God as a day of slaughter. And James says that these people have been blind to their impending doom. They're like Belshazzar in Daniel's day who feasted in Babylon while the writing on the wall spelled out his destruction as the armies, unbeknownst to him, were creeping in to overthrow him. But perhaps the worst accusation <clears throat> that James brings against these people is that they have condemned and murdered righteous people. Verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. They have killed the righteous and were met with no resistance. Like wicked Ahab, who killed Naboth so that he could have his vineyard. These people are guilty of the worst kinds of injustice, the taking of a human life that they had no right to take. And although the righteous did not resist, in verse six, we know that God will. God will because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. There's a promise that this resistance is coming and it's coming <clears throat> with a sword. The day of slaughter is at hand. Miseries are coming upon them for their oppression and cruelty towards others. Malachi chapter three <clears throat> Verse 5 says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is who God is. This is what our God is like. And this is what God will do. Isaiah 5.16 says, The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. If there is no place in your theology for the perfectly righteous judgment of God, 
If it does not both sober you and comfort you, if it doesn't practically shape your response to this life and all the injustices that occur in it, then it shows you don't really know who God is. And we need to know God for who he is. Not as we want him to be, not as we think he is, but as he actually is, as he has revealed himself in his word. Judgment is the response of a just God. And this reality should cause fear and preserve hope. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, let me just tell you, you should fear God. You need to. He is real. He is just. He's the Lord of hosts. And he is coming to judge. The good news is that if you will repent of your sin and cry out for mercy, this just God is also a gracious God who desires to save sinners like you. I said earlier in this message that every sin in the history of the universe will be punished. And that's true. In fact, that's why the cross is so necessary to the gospel message. God's forgiveness of his children is not just sweeping sin under the rug. It's not just looking the other way because God likes to be nice sometimes. No, this forgiveness that God offers you in his grace, it comes at a high cost. God will not compromise his justice to save anyone. The cross of Christ makes it possible for this justice to be fully satisfied as Christ bears our judgment and atones for our sin. But the cross also makes it possible for grace to be poured out upon needy sinners like you and me. If you feel the weight of guilt and conviction this morning, if you feel the dread that this judgment of God is coming for you, do not turn this off today when we're done and try to pretend like you didn't hear this. Don't just plug your ears and close your eyes and try to ignore the storm that is brewing this coming day of judgment. Don't try to run from God. Confess your sin today and kneel before the cross and observe the king of glory slaughtered there, bearing the judgment that sinners like you and me deserve. And as you look to Christ, receive by faith the forgiveness and the eternal life that he has purchased for us with his blood. There's only one way to escape the judgment of God. And that's by clinging to Christ and hiding yourself in the shadow of his cross. To those of you who believe, those of you who know Christ, we would all do well to heed this warning to the rich. We all instinctively want to serve and preserve self, don't we? We may profess to love Christ and to know him, and we do, but often our hearts are prone to wander. Do not think that God can just sort of overlook the idolatry of self. Do not think that God is content to, to be worshipped as one of your gods along with money. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. It's all or nothing. We as believers need to be careful not to fall into the same kinds of sins that characterize the wicked unbelievers. Our idolatrous hearts and wealth is a flammable combination. And we need to be on guard against these sins. Be careful that you do not love wealth. Jesus said we can only have one master. And he warns us that worshiping money is a deadly sin. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Christian, we need to take heed and guard our hearts against the love of money because it brings a myriad of temptations and only leads to destruction. So be warned. But I also want to encourage you this morning. Perhaps you feel um, heavy and discouraged because of the injustice we see in the world around us. Reading the news every day is almost too much to bear. Some of us should maybe stay away from it sometimes. But I want to encourage you to persevere in your faith. Persevere knowing that God will make all things right. As we'll see next week, this has direct application for believers. If you look down in verse 7 and 8, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. He says in verse 8, Be patient, establish your hearts. These are words of encouragement to wait on the Lord, to trust his timing, to be strengthened in our faith. What will happen then when Christ returns should shape how we live now. This is evidence of true faith, genuine faith, a living faith. We look to things unseen. We wait on God and his timing, and it changes us. It changes us as we wait. I want to close with the words of one of my favorite hymns. It was written around the turn of the 20th century. These words really capture the hope that we as believers are to have, even as we live in a world that is full of injustice and oppression. The hymn writer states, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. Heavenly Father, may that be our song today. May we be able to proclaim with full-hearted faith that this is your world, and you see all. And even though evil and wickedness seems to prevail, We know how the story ends. You know that you will perfectly judge every sin, either at the cross or on judgment day. And we know that you will make all things right. You will make all things new. And your justice and your glory will be displayed. Lord, we look forward to that day. We often feel the weight and the burden of sin in our world, both our own sin and the sins of those around us. And we cry out, how long? And we, we cry, Jesus, come quickly. We lament the broken, um, the, the broken lives, the shattered dreams, the injustice. We, we lament and grieve over the blood that is spilled and the wrongs that are done. But God, we are confident that despite all of this, you rule, you reign, and Christ will come and establish his kingdom in power. He will subject every authority to his own. He will judge all his enemies and he will make all things new. Lord, encourage us today with these truths. Sober us. Give us a big view of you, the Lord of hosts, who sees all and knows all 
and will judge with perfect justice. And God, those who do not know you, please let them hear this warning today. Open their eyes to their need and to the sufficiency of the sacrifice of your son and draw them to yourself. We pray that you would save sinners and encourage your saints. In Christ's name we pray, amen.